I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. And this is our third workshop episode where we discuss and collaborate on work made by our listeners in the Out on the Wire working group. Each regular episode, we pose a challenge for listeners so you can develop your own stories. The Working Group is an online platform where you can post your responses to the challenges, get feedback from fellow listeners and from us. And then in our workshop episodes, which happen every other week between the main episodes, we choose some of the interesting work from the Working Group and we talk about it to see if we can help move it forward. My collaborators today are Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hello. And fellow cartoonist, also my husband, Matt Madden. Hi, everyone. As I said, each workshop we're responding to a challenge posed in the previous episode. Episode three's challenge was... Your mission this week is to create a profile of one or more primary characters in your story. We need you to make some hard choices and write up just a couple of sentences about the character, detailing only whatever backstory is absolutely necessary to make your story work, and no more. As a reminder... This is not a popularity contest. We choose the projects we're going to critique on the show because they pose interesting questions for discussion. Oh, and in case you're shy, don't worry. We will never talk about your work from the community this way without first asking permission. Let's just get started. Uh, How about we start with Jason Merrifield's story this week? Sounds good to me. Do you want to read it? So um, uh, just to give people some context i'm going to read uh jason's focus sentence first um his focus sentence is sydney koizumi a private detective working in a dystopian los angeles a hundred or so years in the future accepts a commission from a domestic servant who is looking for a troubled young girl she raised for many years sid accepts this job because times are hard And she needs the money and also because she identifies with the missing girl and the mental and social problems she is going through. But as she she searches for and then finds the girl and the truth behind her, Sid finds that two of them embroiled in an assassination plot, a political battle between the licit and illicit powers in the city, and the individual struggle to find and create your own personal niche in a turbulent and violent world. And did I understand correctly that this is uh, a novel? Is this a graphic? Is this a graphic work or? A... Um, it's a short novel or novella. Um, and here is his character profile. Uh, Sydney Sid Koizumi is a 32-year-old half-Asian, half-Hispanic private investigator living and working in the rundown outskirts of Cal City, which is itself an amalgamated megacity encompassing most of Central and Southern California. She is average in height and heavier in weight, taking after her father's solid physique and has short black hair that is more often than not pulled back into a lazy ponytail for simplicity. She was raised by her father, a blue-collar worker and reluctant community organizer who was killed in gang-related violence nearly a decade ago. Her mother, a beautiful, intelligent woman, has significant issues with drug and alcohol addiction and was in and mostly out of Sid's life as she grew up. She leveraged her father's reputation and contacts to help start her business at the beginning of her career as a private investigator and has since built her own network of contacts and acquaintances all across the city. 
Like her father, she is quiet and reclusive by nature, does not have many close friends, and often spends her evenings in the same bar that he frequented on a regular basis. She is not uh, she is not antisocial, though, and has friends and a few lovers spread throughout the city, but is inclined to seek out quieter ways to spend her off hours. In contrast to the social chameleon, she is required to be in her job. Also like her father, she's not one to pick a polite word when an impolite one does the job better. One thing I noticed was the very first comment I think I saw either on this or maybe on the focus sentence was like, oh, it sounds exactly like, you know, like Blade Runner or like a Philip Dick novel. I love that kind of stuff. I totally want to read this, which, you know, I agree with too. I, I do like that kind of stuff too. But it, it doesn't, uh, the, the problem is that when you create a sort of a world that's uh, familiar to a certain kind of reader or fan of that kind of fiction, um, you have to be careful not to just uh, slot in all the generic elements um, w- without giving it some kind of new twist to it. Um, and I, f- my first reaction of seeing this stuff is like, yeah, it looks great. You know, I like this kind of stuff. So I'm inclined to, to, to follow, but, um, but it's lacking a bit of, uh, of, uh, specificity and a, and a bit of, um, uh, an original twist on this kind of dystopian, you know, uh, scenario. Um, and speci- my one comment on the character thing is that, um, it's fairly generic and it's about her background. But for one, for example, we never find out why is she, why does she want to be a private investigator? Yeah, it's a pretty basic, that's a pretty basic um, uh, issue that I don't think he's addressed here. I mean, if we were to ask to like, look through this and be like, what are the details we actually need to know out of this to get a story like this rolling? What would they be? She's a, she's a, a bit of a loner. Not antisocial, like she's capable of having friends, but she sticks by herself, right? Well, and she has some sense of uh, of of duty and of uh, moral or ethical obligation, maybe, that she's, you know, her father died because of gang violence, and now she's become a private investigator. It seems like there must be likely to be some connection there. Right. But. So what I said to him is there was a couple of comments back and forth about specific things, and he, he ended up um, answering some of, some of the comments saying... You know, giving many more details about what she should look like and, you know, in his mind, what what she, he imagines his character looking like, which means, you know, basically all this says to me that is that Jason has been thinking about this character very deeply and in a way that I think will be useful, you know. And so I said, what I would like to see is maybe one detail about her, one detail of personality that's a little bit oddball, a little bit weird and um, something that we don't expect and something that reflects on her personality in some way. And I I raised as kind of like the classic example of that is somebody who plays chess, who goes off to like chess clubs and plays chess. Now, I do not suggest using that one. That has been used to death. But when it was first used, it was like, oh, I understand, strategic mind and, you know, has sort of strange underworld connections because they go to these all-night chess clubs or whatever, right? So like Sherlock Holmes and the violin? Kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of thing where it's like it has nothing to do directly with solving crimes, but it tells you something about who this person is and what's interesting to them and what makes their mind work that will reflect be reflected in the way that the story plays out. And he's like, hmm, I got to think about it. And then he comes back yesterday and is like, I got it. She collects old Western pulp novels. And I was like, perfect. That's Mm -hmm. exactly what I was talking about. And I asked him, does she cl- collect like the original pulps? Like she's a collector, like keeps boxes of like Mylar bags of like these original pulps and has the paintings on the walls and all that stuff. And he says, no, she just reads them all the time. They're her escape. 
she's probably got him on her digital reader, you know, or but he says like he she has these like, you know, dog-eared old paperback copies of these things and she carries them around with her, which 100 years in the future even having books at all is going to be weird, right? So that's all already something. But the idea of the western for uh, somebody who's a lawman, you know, or who's somebody who's going to be like thinking about herself in terms of being, you know, the sheriff or something in a western is going to evoke this idea of um nostalgia for you know probably something that never existed but this idea of black and white justice that there's a right and a wrong and things right. should be this way um and also she lived in a megalopolis where there is no like even the landscape is totally confused and overrun with humans and that idea of being like the lone cowboy who comes into town of you know just the emptiness of the desert she lives in a place where there is no emptiness there's also you know a connection between um, you know, the West of the Westerns and California, oh, you know? Yeah, but it's like a California that does not exist anymore. Even now doesn't exist anymore, but especially in 100 years. So so it's a way of sort of bringing either the present or our own past sort of into the story mm-hmm. in a way that I think is really cool. Yeah, it generates a level of ironic commentary of the whole idea of America and, and westward expansion and, you know, the Wild West and then the sort of uh, America, U.S. dead ending uh, in the Pacific Ocean, and then sort of accumulating to this giant mega city in the future that's all corrupt and confused, and the government and again the gangs are all kind of mixed together and stuff. The sort of opposite of this idea, you know, like you said, a, a false original idea of like this clear cut black and white, you know, moral law that um, this character is, you know, striving towards in some way, maybe. All right. So should we do the next one? All right, the next piece we're going to look at is by Emma Jacobs, and I'm going to read her character description, uh, and this is for a, uh, a nonfiction piece. Joy, then named Jay, didn't think there was anything unusual about her until the first day of kindergarten, when she arrived at the schoolyard and ran over to play with what she saw as her natural peer group, the girls, only to be greeted with disgusted cries of, Erg, it's a boy. This was her first lesson about gender, and it set the tone for how she thought about her own gender identity for the next 50 years as something horrifying that she should be ashamed of and keep hidden. Instead of exploring this, she focused on another part of herself, her Jewishness. Unlike being male, being Jewish was a category she understood and felt at home with, even though she grew up in a secular household. Her religious faith and her passion for Jewish history and literature developed into a career as an English professor at an Orthodox Jewish university in New York. There she met a woman and fell in love. And when, a few months into their relationship, Joy told her, sometimes I feel like I'm a woman. Her girlfriend replied, feel like a woman? What does that mean, to feel like a woman? Most of the time, I don't even feel like a woman. They got married, had three children, and began a life that was both happy and sad, full of love and full of imperfection. Joy went through periods of deep depression, times when she felt like she didn't really exist and was dissolving inside her own skin. She couldn't get rid of these two fantasies that, re- that repelled her and obsessed her in turn. One was killing herself. The other was becoming a woman. At the point when I'm picking up her story, Joy is in her mid-50s, and after one of her darkest periods of contemplating suicide, she's just made the decision to transition genders at last. So this is a fascinating story. I love that this is a real, uh, a real story. And, and we know from the um, focus sentence in XY that um, Emma posted earlier that, in fact, uh, Joy lost her position at the university and then gained it back with the help of her students. What I love the most about this 
um, in terms of the character herself is that um, most stories that involve religious characters off will involve some ex- existential questioning of that religion and that cultural identity. Whereas here, it's flipped, and um, that's what's really surprising about her as a character is that the the Jewishness, the cultural and religious uh, thread is solid for her. It's solid all the way through. It never falters. And what falters is what's, for the, for the majority of people, is the most stable identity we have, which is our gender. Obviously, there are plenty of people for whom that is not the case. But um, just speaking in numbers, for the majority, that's the case. And so um, I think that's a really, it's it's a great contrast that she's going to be able to play with in this story. There's a great uh, two-sided thing going on there. There's For me, there's just multiple things that interest me here. Um, I mean, just the idea of like working at a, an Orthodox Jewish university, like I, I don't know what that is like at all. Uh, and so that's like, that's an interesting setting just in the first place, you know? And so we have an interesting setting. We have an interesting character who has these like contradictions. Um, uh, she, she has mentioned, or um, Emma has mentioned that uh, she's still in the process of, of um, learning about, uh, about joy. And also she's, joy has been doing like a lot of speaking on this topic. So it sounds like she's someone that, you know, is probably kind of practiced in this. Um, self-aware about these things. Yeah. Which which can prove to be a challenge, actually, because if Joy is practiced enough at telling her story, um, it may be challenging for Emma to find a way into the story that is surprising, you know, where Joy herself feels surprised and can show that surprise in her voice. You know, what you want for somebody who is um, with interviewing somebody who who's sort of talking about who's out talking about their book or talking about something that happened to them is to find a way through interviewing to to let them re-experience emotionally these turning points. Um, and if she's talked about it so much that she's able to just kind of like breeze over it, that's going to be a problem. That actually is going to be a really big issue. Yeah, that's a danger. One question I'm curious about is the relationship between her gender identity and her Jewish identity. And it partly is just the way Emma has phrased the character thing, but it's a question I wonder if she's asked asked uh, Joy directly or if they've discussed. It almost seems the way it's the, the way her story's played out in her life that she partly embraced Jewishness because she couldn't embrace her what she saw as her true gender identity. And is that kind of like a replacement sort of thing, or is it just that this is a person who has two very strong elements of her identity, her Jewishness and her and her gender? Uh, you know, one of which it took her 50 years to finally be able to to uh, embrace and transition to. Um, or is the Jewishness partly something she uh, latched onto because she she needed a, uh, you know, she needed an anchor? Yeah, I've got another angle on that um, that just came up as you were talking. So um, she grew up in a secular household. Mm-hmm. So she had to transition to orthodoxy. I mean, if she's orthodox which is yeah, not clear well, from this description if she actually right, is know. orthodox or only teaches at an orthodox university. But, you know, I am uh, good friends with many, many secular Jews. And the majority of them, if they were to suddenly decide they wanted to like go to yeshiva or something, it'd be like their parents would not be thrilled about that idea. C- coming out and saying, like, I really care about Judaism and I want to teach, you know, in an orthodox university mm-hmm. could be 
you maybe know a safer kind of transgression in a way maybe but but I think it's a line of questioning. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely could be anything depending right. on what their family's like. Maybe maybe she's got members of her family who are really um you know, positive about this whole change, you know, in the religious on the religious side. Maybe she's got members who are really negative about it. Maybe it was just fine. It was just like it never posed a problem, but it's definitely a question to ask. It's definitely yeah. definitely a line of questioning because it could have been something that was was problematic. Okay, so let's look at another one. All right, so this is um, B.J. Duval's story that he's working on, and I'm going to read the focus sentence first because it's a fairly um, uh, complicated setup, and you need that to understand the character. In a futuristic setting where identity is malleable, and he means literally identity is malleable. People can switch uh, uh, genders and races and everything physically uh, easily. Um, a rich white hetero male is able to remove from himself all the markings of his class and identity in order to become completely anonymous for some illicit gain. But when he does this, he loses all those markings and finds himself outside of the privilege that he was born into and must struggle to regain them or learn what life is like without them. All right, so his character description. Jeremy Crucible is a young, self-centered, upper-middle-class white man that was born into his comfortable life and who never had to work to attain anything. So consequently, he never works to better himself. He's bitter that he doesn't have more and laments his station in life, thinking that he deserved better. Uh, he feels that others have it better than him and fails to recognize just how nicely he has it. He can be a bully at times. He doesn't like to see anyone bring up social issues as it causes him to react like, oh yeah, what about me? What about my problems? He's pretty much a jerk all around. As Jessica Abel put it, and I put it in a different comment somewhere else, he's no Luke Skywalker. Thoughts? For starters, pretty similar to um, the previous uh, um, science fiction piece where it's it's got a good hook to it, but it's fairly generic at this point. And uh, um, Jeremy Crucible doesn't have seem to have much depth beyond being a sort of uh, smug um, egotist. And we don't really get any sense of any reason why we should care about him as a character. Yeah, one of the, one of the comments that I've made, and I don't, I might be the only one that that thinks this, but um, uh, the the allegory here strikes me as a little too on the nose. Like we all, I mean, it, it's it's almost barely an allegory. Like we all know this guy. You know, the reason that Animal Farm, one of the reasons that Animal Farm works as well as it does is because it's it has this like absurd premise that it's about animals on a farm. Like it's just weird and funny in that. Like it allows you to take this like very serious thing and engage with it in a way that um in a more sort of playful, I mean still very very dark, but playful way because they're animals and they're not people. And and I I keep feeling like he needs that sort of twist. Not that they need to all be animals, but just that um I don't know that maybe we need some twist here. Do you complete? Do you? Did you? Completely I know. Disagree? I no. I absolutely agree, but I don't necessarily think that twist or you know different frame is what we need. What we need is a more complicated character, because if the if you know the idea that there's a world where you can like change your identity, you know your gender identity, your racial identity, you can change all these things at the drop of a hat. Maybe it costs money, but you you can choose. Um, I think all of us would try something else on sometimes. That seems like kind of fun. And that seems like a world that um, 
if it were easily possible, people would invent that world. You know, like I would like to be Grace Jones for a while. Why not? Well, have you heard about this thing called Second Life? Okay. All right. But you know what I'm saying? In real life, you know, I want to like that would be fun if you could just kind of switch back and forth and whatever. And the idea that there's somebody who um, goes into into and then, of course, that would immediately be used for crime. Right. As soon as you could do something like that, people would figure out how to use it for illicit purposes. And the fact that this guy, there's a guy who wants to use this to commit some crime or some trick somebody seems totally all that seems totally plausible to me and doesn't necessarily have to be like a heavy handed allegory. You know, that just seems like, you know, we're in a world right now where everybody's like thinking about their identity all the time and thinking about, you know, there's many people, you know, like our last last story we talked about, people in real life are like choosing new identities. And it's much it's hard. You can't just go back from that. But you can switch if you need to. You know, if you feel that that's that's the truth of you, you can do it. So this is a different this is at a different level. It's more like almost, you know, um, entertainment, you know, but still like it seems like something that's worth talking about as a sort of imagine, you know, like a thought, you know, experiment. But that all said, if if all this guy is, is he's an entitled jerk who wants to commit crime with this thing. I know what BJ wants is for him to learn his lesson, basically. He wants him to figure out what it means to have that entitlement, what it means to lose it, and the value in other identities. He wants him to learn all those things. This guy does not seem to have, uh, this character does not seem to have the emotional depth or background to, exp- to have any of those experiences, to understand any of that stuff. You know, except at a super, very superficial level where I don't care. You know, like I'm not going to care about that, and so, and I think so. That's it's a matter of like building the character so that there's some complicated backstory there. Uh, not complicated backstory. That's the wrong word, but some kind of some richness. That's richness. That's yeah, emotional richness to his life. That when he loses accidentally, presumably loses his identity. So he's like, I think the idea is that he's like blank. Like it's not that he's some other identity. It's like he had. You know, he's sort of like a human blank. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, again, to me, that comes back to, in addition to the character, just the lack of specificity in the story. It's like uh, this thing about um, in the future, you can turn in some somebody else to do other stuff, illicit and otherwise. Like, that's too too general. And, and like the whole question of, I mean, yes, the allegory thing is, a, is an issue, but it comes down to a matter of subtle storytelling. You know, that's why uh, Animal Farm uh, is considered to work or... Or why trading places works, you know. It's like that's a very, it's a very common Prince and the Popper kind of um, storyline, um, and yes, it's very blatantly allegorically, but but most uh, science fiction is and fantasy um, has that aspect. So it's just a matter of how mu- how much richness there is to it. And right now, all we're seeing is that naked structure without any kind of detail put onto it, um, and so it makes it seem like it won't be able to bear that weight. Um, but for me, there's definitely the character of Jeremy Crucible is very you know one note. On the one hand, but also the situation, it's still not clear to me what it means when they say he goes to do illicit stuff. Once you have a um, backstory that's going to tie in, you know, he has a motivation, not just to get money, not just to get money or something, but he has some kind of motivation to, like, do something. Um, or be someone. Or be someone. Or, you know, like, it means, like, he wants to be someone because that has some emotional meaning to him on top of, you know, illicitly. Um and then the setup for whatever this 
job is he's undertaking is also tied in with his motivations. Like those things have to be tied together in some way for it to like click something with him where he's like, you know, why would a guy like that do this? And and I think that there's also a whole bunch of world building stuff that has to happen before he's really ready to roll here. He's got to really think about like what would it what would a world be like where this is possible? Who's doing it? How much does it cost? What effect does it have on the individuals, on their relationships? People do it all the time. Is it only for rich people? Is it only for criminals? Like what's going on here? And like there's a bunch of that stuff that has to get thought through and a lot of sort of writing needs to be done about what is this world and like what is the what do people use what are all the things you can imagine people would use this ability for like if you had this ability what are the conditions for getting access to it you know money the right doctor the whatever like what are the things that you literally have to have and then once you have those things what do you what's your aim what what are all the different motivations people would have to actually undergo this process once you have all that, I think you can start thinking about who this character is and how he fits in. Um, I guess one thing that I, I think to make clear is like we don't I don't think we think that this guy needs to really be likable. Oh, no, no, he, no. He, he shouldn't needs, be likable. He just needs to he needs to be empathizable. Like there has to be some part of him that we can relate to. Like he can't just be a jerk. Right. And even if his goal is to make tons of money. There's got to be some emotional logic to that. Not like, oh, I need to make tons of money to like fund the children's hospital. But like, I need to make tons of money because, I don't know, what's a what's a good motivation for that? The Christmas pageant. He's got to save the Christmas pageant. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like... Um, he feel you know, like one of the things he says in this, in this um, description is he always feels like he's the underdog, even though he's not the underdog. So maybe like there's something uh, emotionally about being the guy with the most money that will you know that's set up at the beginning that will help him um and in the end he has to figure out that like having the most money is not going to fix that thing whatever that hole is in his heart that's not the answer is not having the most money like if that's if that's what he's after i'm yeah. just saying like it seems to me like the 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 ability to change identity if you're already a rich white guy you wouldn't use that just to be a richer somehow richer, you know, unless, I mean, that would be one twist to like, he, if he's, if it's really like he feels uh, bitter that he's not, he's going to become an even whiter, even richer white person, you know, <laughs> but I'm not sure how far he could go with that, but it seems more like it's about changing roles and like, uh, you know, uh, becoming black, becoming a woman, becoming a different person somehow, um, as a way of, uh, I don't know, exploring different experience. But then the question is, if he's such a jerk, why would he? Why would he? Why would he? Why would he seek that out? You know, which maybe he's accidentally put into this thing. I don't know. Right. Or uh, like, just there's lots of unanswered it, questions here. Exactly. But I think that the what you're just pointing to that it's not just about it can't just be about money, but it could be about power, and um and somehow like he could feel disempowered. He clearly does feel disempowered, even though he's he's not disempowered, and so somehow this changing of identities. He thinks he's going to give him access to something that will give him power. Um, that seems like an obvious direction to go and not and obvious in a good way, not obvious in a bad way. Like that seems like the productive, way yeah. productive way to go. So how does changing identities, how does he think it's going to give him power? Is it some trick or is it like he is trying to prove a point, win a bet that like black women have more power than he does because they're get single, you know, like. 
that seems pretty thin, but you know, like you got to go all the way down that road and figure out what is the thing that makes sense for a character like that to want, and then why does he want it? Our our next one is by Julia Chen, and um, uh, so she's actually written uh two character profiles for us, um, uh, one of which uh concerns herself as the main character, and one of which concerns her subject as a main character. She's actually not sure sort of which approach to take to the story, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so her for her as the character, she says, Julia is a writer who noticed the usage of lithia water as a common mixer with whiskey in a James Joyce story. Julia was surprised at the notion that common mixers could change with time, perhaps an obvious concept, but one uh, she never gave much thought to, and remembered reading that lithium and in drinking water improved several measures of mental health. Julia, a history major, mental wellness proponent, and whiskey drinker, wanted to explore what the changing status of lithia water throughout the 20th century says about our drinking culture and use of chemical elements as medicine. Um, And then uh, she wrote another one using the idea of lithia water sort of as the main character. Lithia water is mineral water that contains lithium salts. It was hugely popular in the early 20th century due to acclaimed health benefits. Demand for lithia water outgrew what the few natural lithia water springs could produce, and companies started to infuse regular mineral water with lithium. Lithia water also became widely used as a mixer and a cocktail ingredient. The FDA started clamping down on the lithia water's claims from treating kidney disease to impotence to keeping the blood pure, effectively ending its popularity. Lithium was widely widely accepted as a psychiatric drug by mid-century and decades later. Lithium in water was found to have positive health effects. Unfortunately, it was no longer on the American mindset or taste palate. Lithia water's hyperbolic uh, marketing made it successful but ultimately became its downfall. The FDA was still rallying around their claims as late as uh, 2012. All right, I'll jump in here. um, And I hate to... Uh, for the second time in this podcast, uh, partially shoot down someone's idea based on Radiolab having got to it first. But in fact, just last week, I was listening to uh, a podcast of Radiolab, and they have an episode that came out um, pretty recently called On the Elements. It's called Elements. And the first story on there is by uh, a woman named uh, Jamie, by a woman named Jamie Lowe, um, who... uh, and I think based on a piece she did in the New York Times, it's not clear to me if she's doing a, a book, a memoir about her, her history with bipolar disease, um, but she's a long piece in the New York Times Magazine, which I think she reworked for, for Radiolab about her personal history with lithium, where she talks exactly a lot, a lot of the themes, including the fact that there was lithia beer that was popular in the 20s. Um, and so it really covers the, the mental health aspects of lithium salts and, and, uh, and even the, you know, being Radiolab, the cosmic thing that it's apparently a, a particle that dates back to the, to the, uh, the Big Bang. Um, so it's not at all to say, again, that, that, that your idea that, that uh, so again, it's not at all to say that Julia's idea isn't worth pursuing, but that maybe she needs to refine what, it, what she has to say about uh, lithia water in particular. And, you know, as a whiskey drinker, perhaps more than the mental wellness proponent, uh, which has been pretty well covered by this, this other woman, you know, there are, there is a history in, in, uh, um, in the U.S. especially of all kinds of, uh, you know, dangerous or questionable 
materials being used as as uh, as drink mixers. I say as as a cocktail enthusiast myself, I know a lot of uh, b- cocktail bitters that were made in the early 20th century had all kind of carcinogenic, poisonous, you know, lead elements in there that <laughs> have getting taken out, including and all, of course, you know, cocaine. That's where we get Coca Cola. Uh, and all kinds of other uh, now illicit or uh, frowned upon substances. So that could be an interesting, if maybe less uh, intense, uh, story to tell. Well, I think the culinary cocktail angle is maybe the way to go here because I, I'm sure that's not what Jamie Lowe was doing, right? I mean, she mentions it. No, in her article, she does mention a, a product called lithium beer that apparently, uh, or lith- lithia beer that was made in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, which I don't know if that's the same thing as the lithia water that uh, Julia is talking about or yet another variation of it. But I, I but, mean, um, I think the value of Julia as a character is that Julia is a seeker. Julia is looking for the answers. She's curious. And it's her curiosity that's driving the story. And that is very useful when you have an inanimate center to your story. So as much as she may feel uncomfortable about being that person, she doesn't have to be, you know, way up in the foreground. It's But it's the equivalent of the Jessica Abel character in the Out on the Wire book, where um, I am able to make transitions between things. I'm able to a- ask questions because I care about the answer. And because I care about the answer, I can help you care about the answer. I think that's very valuable. And you can do this kind of, you know, the Lithia Water question, you know, if that's the main character... She's basically doing kind of like a third-person objective report. Um, but the downside of that is that it's it's very hard to get emotion out of that. It's very hard to get some kind of um, – uh, I mean, there's chronology because things happen in a certain order, but there's very little to, like, root for or care about if there's nobody in it, you know? And maybe there's somebody who uses lithium to control their um, symptoms of mental illness, and she can use that person. But – I think really having Julia as the as the character is going to be much more productive for her, even if it feels uncomfortable. Um, that said, I do think that given the fact that the lithia lithium angle has been very thoroughly covered very recently, she really needs to listen to that and see if she has a new angle. If she does, yeah, that's fine. the first step. But if if she does, great. Like, do a new angle because talking more about the same subject is can be a really good thing that you're starting a whole conversation about something that people weren't talking about before. So that seems fine. But if she doesn't really have a significantly different angle, go with cocktail mixers. Like start with lithia, do cocaine. <laughs> Nightshade and whatever Nightshade else you put in all like, kinds of... Right. Like what is the thing about um, absinthe that people used to... You know, the wormwood in absinthe is like, you mm. know... Is uh, actually... Not a, not, it's not that poisonous, you, but, but you know, like there have been be. scares about all these things, and there, so there are things that are legitimately dangerous, and there are things that are not legitimately dangerous. But people made all these kinds of health claims about them, and doing a story about that and testing them all, like making cocktails with them, and and sort of taking that road could be really entertaining. I it bet could be a really good piece. D- depending on where she lives, um, you know, if she if she lives in a place like New York, I am sure that there are, you know, bearded enthusiasts who um I, I there must be like working high level like this sommelier of yeah, cocktails yeah, yeah. yeah they're called um mixologists 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 yeah there's all these people now who are making you know matt started making his own bitters like 15 years ago now and we sort of matt 
was profiled once or twice in magazines and stuff. And like, if he'd followed that along, our, we would be set by now. But he sort of was like tapered off. instead. But anyway, the point being that um, we're fully aware of this whole movement. And there are tons of people making their own bitters now. There's like hundreds of kinds of bitters on the market. And, you know, um, all these different people who are investigating historical cocktails and all this other stuff. You know, Julia probably knows that, too. I don't know where she lives, but if she lives in any major metropolis in the United States and some other countries, she's going to find people to talk to about yeah. this. But there's I think, always Harold McGee. He's always worth looking up to. Exactly. There's And there's stuff online and whatever, but, like, she's going to get some – she can get some good interviews. She can have people in the bar who are drinking, have them taste test. I mean, it could be really funny and cool. And if she's a drinker, like, and she's curious about this, then that is a way to hang it, you know, to pull it all together. I would kind of actually like to hear her adventure in trying to get lithia water. Like, maybe she actually buys some lithia crystals. If maybe, I don't, I assume you could probably do that. I don't know. Um, buy some lithia crystals and dissolves them in order to make her own lithia water. Right. How do you make lithia water? Exactly. Get your, you know, what you need is to get, you have your like soda stream and you get your little capsule of lithium. And right. like put it in the could be. That could be all it takes. <laughs> anyway, I think that's a good idea. I think that it, as long as she takes us, I think, again, that is an angle on this. And she seems to be happy with that angle to a certain extent. Like she talks about how she's interested in as a whiskey drinker. Run with that because that is totally not what Julia Lowe is talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, and follow Jamie. that along. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not what Jamie Lowe is talking about in her story. Um it's you know it's, it's mentioned we have James Joyce involved in this too so we have uh, Julia Jamie James and Joyce which is a last name which is also a woman's first name so I'm totally confused on the names now uh, thank you Julia and thanks uh, everybody else who um, allowed us to use their work on this episode we really appreciate it yeah this was yeah, a lot of stuff. fun do we want to do a question uh, sure let's do a question okay so Keith Britt asks, it seems like you focused on developing fictional characters, which left me struggling to develop my non-fictional characters, especially in terms of their projected future. Even the act of projecting a character's future made me feel like I wasn't letting the story develop naturally. I felt like I was forcing the narrative. To a little background, Keith is a, um, we talked about him in a couple episodes ago. He is working on a podcast series about himself. He is a vet with PTSD, and he's going to be um, trying to launch a career as a stand-up comic. And he, he actually recently posted a um, uh, a little clip from uh, some tests that he's doing. I don't know if you've heard it yet, but it's oh, I it, did. It's, it's hilarious. hilarious. It's very good. Yeah, and mostly it's his wife who's hilarious. So he uh-huh. might have to do a two two person show. Oh. She is she is something. Uh, yeah, no, it's very good. Um, uh, so, and, and everybody's excited about Keith's story. Everybody in the group is just really, you know, hot on the idea. Um, but I can understand why he would have, be uncomfortable because he doesn't, the whole, it's kind of like, um, a version of the startup podcast with Alex Bloomberg where you can't really know where this is going. Like he can't predict, like, is he going to succeed or fail? You know, like, are people going to, how are people going to react? Like, that's the whole question of the entire podcast. And if he felt like he had to predict all of that stuff in his character profile, then that's a problem, you know. Uh, but I don't actually think you have to do that in order to make a character profile. I think maybe I, I put it possibly a little bit confusingly in the episode um, where I talked about projecting with a nonfiction character, like what the issues are going to be. Mm-hmm. But I think more what I was trying to get at is like you want to think them through. You want to think about like what are the kinds of things that the Keith character are going to uh, 
come up against and then what what elements of his personality and backstory will uh, intersect with those issues. I guess it's, a, it's another way of focusing in on what is going to be important about the story, you know, like identifying what is going to be important to this character. Like, what are the beats that you're going to want to follow up on um, no matter sort of how they play out? Sort of projecting possible outcomes without you know, without choosing or, or judging one in particular, but just, just having an idea of what to look out for as you move forward. Is that well, not even outcomes, like possible challenges, possible things that will come up. I mean, he's he's a guy with PTSD who's going to be on stage trying to be a stand-up comic. And his wife basically did his character uh, description for him in this clip. But she's like, you're going to be super awkward and um, people are not going to know what to do and they're going to either hate it or hate you or, you know, so there's this, she kind of, she knows him really well and she lays out a whole bunch of what she sees as being the, she's against the plan. And she, <laughs> and she lays out all the reasons why she thinks it's a terrible idea. And that's basically his character outline. You know, like Keith is a guy who, you know, um, comes across as like his his sense of humor is too subtle for most people. People who think he's really funny think he's hilarious, but that's like a small percentage of people. So how is he going to do this thing? Like that's one element of his character description, I think. And I don't know that that's in what he actually wrote for his character description. You know, I think he was thinking like, I need to go through the entire, you know, future plot of what's going to happen where he's trying to discover it as he goes along. Um, but if he thinks about the kinds of things he, he's going to come up against, which he needs to do again you know, next week when we do more structure stuff, it's like, what are the types of things you're going to want to talk about here? What are the kind of pieces of this story moving forward? You think about those things, you're like, okay, well, what, how is, what's that going to trigger in Keith the character? You know, when he's got a club owner who doesn't want to pay him or when he's got um, you know, classic things from stand-up comedy you know, stories like he's he's got a dead room where nobody responds to him or he's got three people in his audience um, or his mom comes to see him. You know, it's like, how does Keith, the character, react to those things? And like thinking about that will help focus the storytelling. All right. So that's it for episode 3.5. Um, there's so much we couldn't get to in this week's episode. And you can check out all those stories and all those characters in the Out on the Wire working group. And I really, really recommend that you do. Even if you are not working on your own story, I would really uh, recommend getting in there and checking out what other people are doing. And we welcome people um, being good collaborators and commenting on other people's stories, even if they're not posting their own stories. Don't feel shy. Everybody wants the feedback. That's why they're there. You can get in the Out on the Wire working group by going to my uh, website at jessicaable.com slash podcast and signing up for my newsletter. And then we will send you out an invite almost immediately afterwards. Um, at the show page, you can also read up on show notes from all our episodes, including this one. And we will have links to, uh, or not links to, I guess we will have the actual text of the stories we talked about today in those show notes. Um, and they'll get mailed out to you if you're on the newsletter as well. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, and please uh, please do. We also have a Patreon for our podcast, and it's a great way to support the show. I have to tell you, for Ben and I, when we get a notification that Patreon that somebody has signed up for to be a patron on our Patreon, it's super exciting. It just feels like total validation of what we're doing, that somebody cares enough to go there and actually 
put down hard-earned money. It doesn't matter if it's a dollar or if it's $40. It's just really an awesome feeling. And in the Patreon uh, patron area, we've got the full 50-minute interview with Stephanie Fu from episode one. We have an extended version of Ira's story about his reporting trip with the, with the twin principals. And we have music downloads from the show by Matt. Um, and if at certain levels, we're offering hand-drawn internet avatars for you or for a friend. We may start having sponsors at some point for the show. And being a patron will give you access to ad-free versions of the show. And, and for patrons that might um, be listening, uh, feel free on Patreon or on Twitter just to let me know sort of the, the kinds of things you're interested in so far as like you want to hear more from a certain interview that we've done, uh, a certain tape that you heard on the show. Um, let us know because uh, we'd, we'd really like to share some of that stuff. on. on right. That. We can totally recut parts of our interviews. I have 80 hours plus of archive and um, and Ben is ready ready and willing to cut up some of that stuff for you guys. Just let us know in the Patreon um, private area. So you can find me on Twitter at JCCAble. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. And Matt is at M Madden Comics. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And we'll see you next week with episode four, Bare Bones, where you'll learn about structure and framing with exclusive interviews with Hannah Joffe-Walt, more from Soren Wheeler and Sean Cole, and a brand new interview with Jonathan Mitchell from The Truth. See you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye.